Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. We're continuing on in our sermon series called A Firm Foundation. And uh, as we begin, I was thinking and prepping for this sermon this week, and I was thinking about the idea of a marathon. Now, if you've been following marathons at all, or even world news at all for the past couple of years, there's this guy named Elliot Kipchoge. He is a Kenyan runner, and he's still alive to this day. He's a modern runner, and he's widely regarded as one of the best marathon runners of all time in all of history. He's an amazing, amazing athlete. He has the record for four out of the top 10 fastest marathons in the history of the world. And in 2019, he attempted to do something that no one has ever done before. He wanted to run a sub two hour marathon. This is an absolutely incredible pace for a man. Anything under four hours would be considered a good marathon time, putting you in the top 43% of runners. And so he was going to have the time of what would be the top 43% of runners. He's going to have that and say, I'm going to run a sub two-hour marathon. And actually, there's this YouTube challenge called the Kipchoge Challenge, which is they put his pace. He has such a fast pace, and they get people, even runners, even professional runners, to see how fast that they can run at his pace. And so they actually have set up booths at conferences where they have this long track that's set up to his pace that he needed to be at to run a sub two-hour marathon. And most people can't do it for longer than three or four seconds, much less two hours. So in Vienna in October of 2019, he went to Vienna and he set the world record for the fastest marathon in sub two hours. Uh, But it's not just him doing it alone. He had an entire team to help him. So um, this this team of experts came around him. So Vienna was chosen because it was really close to Kenyan time. So Kipchoge would have this minimal amount of effect from jet lag. He There were some specific shoes that were designed specifically for this event and for professional runners. He actually had a pacing car that went in front of him with lasers to show him how fast he and his team needed to be running. But actually... One of the most interesting interesting things about this run from Elliot Kipchoge was that he had this whole team focused on wind resistance. When you're trying to make marginal improvements, when you're trying to get above a sub two hour marathon where seconds could mean the difference and this all of this cost and energy, um, he actually hired an expert in uh, a scientific expert in wind resistance. So um, they talked about, they chose this park in Vienna that had all of these incredible trees to block the wind and how much energy he needed to expend to run, of course, would be minimized if he didn't have wind resistance. And, And they actually had 41 pacers. These were runners, professional athletes. Um, that would go around Elliot that actually had to keep pace with him and they would cycle in and out and they were in a flying V formation. So he'd have people in front of him 
people around him in like a V shape, right? He's at the center of the V. And then there's people behind him too. And they did all of this research on wind resistance to figure out what's the best formation for these pacers to run around him. And he was running so fast that he couldn't just have pacers for the whole time. His pacers, who are also professional Olympic athletes, these are guys that had won won medals in the Olympics, they were running, he was running so fast, they had to cycle them in and out so often. And even then, a few of them couldn't keep up with his pace. But that rotated um, pacers, it cut the wind resistance. So we have the skills and the discipline of Eliud Kipchoge. He had a team. He then had the right conditions. He had the right location. And then he was able to run the fastest marathon in recorded human history. And, you know, the reason why this resonates with me so much today is that the Christian faith over a lifetime is often described as a race. Even Paul says he's running his race to win, right? And what we see is that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Eugene Peterson calls the Christian life and discipleship long obedience in the same direction. So like Elliot, it takes a team of people to sustain following Jesus over a lifetime. It takes discipline. It takes internal motivation. It takes external support from a team. It takes volunteers like those pacers that are similar to Elliot. It takes experts that are experts in their field to guide him and give him direction. It takes people supporting him and encouraging him and his family along the way. But but most importantly, um, like following Jesus is very similar to that. It takes discipline. It takes internal motivation, but it takes a deep abiding faith and it takes a focus on the end goal. Now for Elliot, it was running the fastest marathon and and really he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to do it. There's a reasonable assumption that he would, but he wasn't sure. It wasn't already attained. Now see, this is where it gets different than running a normal marathon because our end goal as Christians is to be with Jesus. And the moment you choose to follow Jesus, you put in the stake into the ground, you submit to his lordship and kingship, you already have him. And then now, for all of eternity, you have Jesus. So you've already accomplished the goal. You've won the race. So we don't follow Jesus ongoingly in our life. We don't run the marathon of, of, of faith. We don't run the marathon of a Christian walk with Christ and abiding with him from a position of earning. We run from a position of receiving all of who he is. So it's because he's given us himself. He's actually given us the prize before we even start running the marathon of the Christian faith. And so the reason why we run it is we run it from a position of victory. We run it from a position of we want to be with Jesus throughout the pace of our lives. And this is what we're doing together as a church family. See, as a church family, we're running towards Jesus. We're running towards Christ like this. We're running, we're running with Jesus and with one another together. And our vision is this, that we are a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. And this year, we're calling our sermon series a firm foundation. We're sharing who we are, why we exist, and, and what we're focusing on in this upcoming year. And we're actually centering this, this whole sermon series around a passage in Matthew 7. It says these words, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house. 
but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. My friends, Jesus is the cornerstone of our spiritual family. He's the rock that we build our firm foundation on. And in January, we're exploring our vision statement in in four sermons. Last week, we talked about this idea of family, how we engage with one another, how we view our church. Today, we're talking about following, how we engage as disciples by following the life and teachings of Jesus. Next week, Derek's going to talk about finding, how we engage others on their spiritual journeys. This is reproducing the gospel in others. And then finally, Derek's going to talk about faith, how we engage God and the gospel through hearing, believing, and then obeying the truth of Jesus. So these kind of core tenets of the Christian faith, this is our our fundamental reality, that Jesus is is the truth, and Jesus is the foundation, and the gospel is our foundation of our faith. And so today we're continuing with how to engage as disciples who follow the life and teachings of Jesus in a sermon we title Following. And this is kind of our main point for today is that our church is a family of faith, united by a common vision to follow the life and teachings of Jesus. When we follow him as our savior, we learn to die to ourselves and receive his life, which changes everything about us. So looking at a crucial passage in Mark 8, and actually this was my dad's life verse, one that he asked to be read daily over him as he was dying, and what I actually preached at his funeral. So this has a really personal significance for me, and, and this passage really informs how we at Redeeming Hope view this idea of following Jesus as disciples. So we're going to talk about three points today. We're talking about a family following Jesus the Christ, a family following Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again, and a family following Jesus into death and resurrection. So first off, a family following Jesus the Christ from Mark 8, starting in verse 27, it says these words. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, another say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And and he asked them, but who, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now, Jesus is asking a teaching question. Who do others say that I am? And so he's walking with his disciples and he's asking them. He's asking them a teaching question to begin to form conversation. So some say John the Baptist, who was a a modern prophet. He was a healer. He was actually a forerunner of Jesus, Jesus' cousin, actually. Some people thought that Jesus was Elijah. He was the most, Elijah was the most famous prophet, the most powerful prophet in Israel's history. They thought he was like a reincarnation of Elijah. And maybe he was one of the prophets of old, this idea of having ancient wisdom. So you see, the crowds are seeing Jesus as an important figure, but they have no real insight into his true identity. And so obviously the, the, the answers of the disciples are insufficient. And so Jesus turns his question to the disciples and he asks them, but, but who do you say that I am? Obviously the crowd's answer is not enough. And so Peter answers, you are the Christ. Now Christ is a title. It's not just Jesus's last name. It's not like Joshua Young, Jesus Christ. It's actually a title. And you see, the Christ was supposed to be the fulfiller of the Israelites' expectation of a deliverer. He was also going to be called the anointed one or the Messiah. And you see, 
Christ is the title. He says this is the Savior of the world that's been promised since the very beginning of time. And see, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and promises of a Savior who would one day come to save us all. That's what that word means. It's a weighty word. It's a heavy word. It wouldn't be used of anyone except those who would be thinking Jesus would come to save the world, who would be God incarnate. And so in this preparation to understand who he is, Jesus actually is affirming that he is the Christ. He's making a stark comparison. Jesus is not simply a prophet. He is God incarnate, come to save the world as the promised Messiah. And so here at Redeeming Hope, we we follow Jesus. It's important as we begin to think and consider what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we follow Jesus who's not simply a prophet. He's not simply a good person. He's not simply a good example that we We strive to emulate. No, we follow the God of the universe who became flesh and bone, the one way back to God, the singular savior of the human race, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our savior. So we're a family following Jesus the Christ. Secondly, we're a family following Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. So of course they're walking and they had just said Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. Okay, great. Now let's go tell everybody. Good news. The Savior's come. The world is going to change. But then right away, Jesus says these words. He says in Mark 8.30, it says, And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is another title for Christ, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, why did Jesus tell his disciples to be silent about this? Right? Because it seems like the world has been waiting for the good news of Jesus. The world's been waiting for the Savior. And now all of a sudden, Jesus says, yeah, that's me. And he says, well, wait, don't tell anybody. You see, Jesus had a better plan. And this relates to this idea of Peter, which we're going to continue to explore in a minute. You see, Peter was a zealot. Now, the zealots were a Jewish Jewish faction in the first century, and they opposed the Romans ruling over them. And quite frankly, we can't blame them. And they wanted to take up arms. And these, these just Jewish faction of zealots, they wanted to fight the Romans and fulfill the Messianic prophecy. So they, so they actually wanted the Christ to be a mechanism to overcome the Roman oppression of their people. They wanted to politicize the Christ. They wanted to politicize Jesus. They wanted to win a political overthrow of the government, and they wanted to use Jesus to do so and to galvanize people around this man who is claiming to be the Christ, who is claiming to be God incarnate, and say, okay, let's go to war against the Romans. Let's establish a new government. But you see, this was so narrow to view Jesus's salvation as just political and physical. Now, what we see at the end of Mark is very telling. You see, Jesus's public revelation of himself as the Christ was in a much more powerful way than Peter ever could have imagined. Peter, who wanted to take up arms against the Romans. No, so much better. Now, fast forward to the end of Mark. It's in the middle of the night. Jesus is in chains. He's been arrested. He's been betrayed. He's being beaten. In Mark 14, it says, and the high priest stood up in the midst of this false 
phony trial. And he asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Mocking him. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I want you to think about this. In chains, blindfolded, at a false, secret, unjust trial, in the middle of the night, in front of his accusers who were lying about him, the God of the universe willingly submits to chains. He is preparing for his final suffering and his substitutionary death. And that is when Jesus chooses to publicly reveal that he is the Christ. This is not the Savior that the Jews were looking for. This is a savior in weakness, not strength. He's a savior in submission, not power. He's a savior in persecution, not authority. We would never have chosen to do it this way because that is what marks our savior and Messiah, suffering and rejection. So going back to Mark 8, Jesus says four things. He says he will suffer. He says he will be rejected by all the religious leaders and all the people. Now, this is directly juxtaposed to the declaration in the previous verses that he is the Messiah. He makes it clear that he will not be recognized as the Christ, but rather he will be rejected. Third, he says he will be killed. And this is where it would have made absolutely no sense to the disciples, especially to Peter. Their Savior dying? How can he save Israel? How can he bring salvation into the world if he's dead? How in the world can he do that? And then the fourth point, which oftentimes with the disciples seems like they don't even listen to this fourth point. It says he will rise again. It's like they're shocked when he rises from the dead. He kept telling them over and over and over again, even here. But he says he will rise from the dead. Jesus continues to clarify this, both previously and in subsequent passages. It's like the disciples gloss over it, like it wasn't even mentioned. I see what we draw from this is that we follow Jesus who consciously knew he was going to be rejected, who willingly walked into suffering and death, and who victoriously rose again on the third day to declare any and all who follow him free of sin. We follow Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. That's what we that's who we follow here at Redeeming Hope. And third, we're a family following Jesus into death and resurrection. So we got Peter again, who had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He can't believe this. He's blown away. He wants Jesus to save them from the Romans. And he's like, okay, you just said you're the Christ. I've seen you do all these miracles. I've seen you do all these healings. I've seen you do all these things. And now you're telling me you're going to die? You're going to be crucified? You're going to be killed by the very people that we're trying to overthrow. Peter doesn't like that. So this is what Peter does. Mark 8, verse 32, it says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He's rebuking Jesus. But on turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter rebukes Jesus by taking Jesus aside. This means that Peter, who is supposed to be following behind Jesus, walks up from behind him gets equal with him. This is what you did as a rabbi. You would walk ahead of your disciples going from town to town to teach your interpretation of the Old Testament. That's what all rabbis did. Of course, Jesus was the rabbi, right? So he's teaching them about himself 
as he's walking, but Jesus is walking ahead. His disciples are walking behind. They're going up to Caesarea Philippi. And it's a, it's a journey upward, right? It's on a hill. And so he's turning and teaching his disciples as he's walking. That's how a rabbi would do it. And so Peter gets equal. He has to get ahead of Jesus. He has to go, go equal with him. He grabs his arm, I'd imagine, pulls him to a side and says, why are you saying this? You can't say this. Why does, why does Peter do this? Because my friends, Peter wants a win. And suffering and rejection and death doesn't look like winning to Peter. And really, we see that anger is not the core emotion here. You see, in his anger, in his desire to see his version of God's kingdom come, Peter lost sight of the true win, which was salvation. Not simply salvation from the Romans, but, but really what's motivating him is not anger, it's fear. He was fearful. This was motivated his rebuke of his master. Here's the deal, my friends. I see a lot of, quite frankly, I see a lot of myself in Peter. Because isn't Peter's blindness my own? Isn't it our own? I have such difficulty with suffering. I have such difficulty seeing how suffering is producing something beautiful in my life. I have so much difficulty seeing how death can give birth to resurrection. And I think we all do. This is how we're hardwired. So a couple questions. Are we comfortable with a suffering Christ? Can we be comfortable with a Christ who was submitted to the authority of his oppressors in order that we may be saved? Are we comfortable with identifying with Christ's suffering, seeing our own pain as a mechanism of God's will and God's grace to you and to others? Are we seeking to use Jesus to accomplish a political or social tool to bring in our own kingdom? Or do we follow him as our king and lord, letting him tell us what to do? You see, we don't naturally want to follow Jesus into the death of our own will, our own agenda. But that is exactly what he's calling us to do. And after Jesus rebukes Peter for saying this, he calls the crowd around him to listen. So look with me at Mark eight thirty four. It says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So Jesus begins by saying, if anyone would come after me. The call of Jesus is to follow him. And actually, this is what it means to be a disciple. This is why we say we follow Jesus together. That's part of our vision statement, right? Well, the word disciple literally translated means follower of someone or something. And so you can follow the life and teachings of Tony Robbins. You can follow the life and teachings of Elon Musk. That would be quite hard because he's a billionaire. And I don't know anybody in our church or context that has a billion dollars. But if you'd like to talk to me about donating to Redeeming Hope, you're more than welcome to call me. But I see that there is, there's, we always follow someone or something in our life. We're always following a philosophy, a, a way of thinking, whether it's um, following military leaders, we listen to people like Jocko Willink or David Goggins and have a certain philosophy of thought. There's certain people that are successful that we aspire to be like. But being a disciple, being a being a, a true disciple, 
being an appropriate disciple is we want you to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. So that means that you go where Jesus go. You walk where Jesus walks. You run where Jesus runs. And you do what Jesus does. So Jesus says, if you want to be a disciple, you must come after me. You must, you must follow me. And then there's a three-step process to come after Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus tells us exactly what it means. It says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So first, deny yourself. My friends, we all have an inclination towards self-protection and self-gratification. This is our default mode in the human heart. We want to protect. We want to meet our own needs first. And the call of the Christian is to deny the immediate, to follow the eternal. Deny immediate comfort for ultimate joy, living for ultimate long-term joy. It's the same thing as going to the gym to work out. We don't want to go to the gym when we're driving there. When we have to get up and put on the shorts and go there and park and it's cold and it's raining and you have to go in and you have to check in in the gym and all this stuff and it's taken away from other things you can be doing. But we deny the immediate comfort for long-term health, long-term goals eternal goals here as followers of Jesus. So deny ourselves. The second way we follow Jesus is to take up your cross. Now, remember, we, we see the cross 2,000 years later. Some of you might even have, I have crosses. I have multiple crosses tattooed on my body. I have one, two, three. I have three crosses tattooed on my body. I'll probably get more. But the cross is not the the happy message that many Christians wear around their necks or get tattooed or put put in your ears, you know. Um, the, the cross was actually a torture device. This was a mechanism of torture and death in the time of Jesus. So the closest thing, and it's not even comparable, but the closest thing is like the electric chair. It's almost like an electric chair that waterboards you, okay? That's about the closest thing that we can get to. And what Jesus says is take up your electric chair. Take this instrument of death. Take up the cross. Embrace it. Bring it close to you. My friends, the call of the Christian is to pick up your instrument of death. It's to die to yourself and to welcome that death. Because why? We're not living for immediate satisfaction. We're living for long-term joy. And that means putting to death ourselves. I even say this is what marriage is. Um, When I've preached on marriage in the past at Redeeming Hope, I say, I put up a a thing on the screen that says, marriage equals death. It's dying to yourself. It's dying to your individual needs to serve your wife and your family, to serve one another, to care for one another. You die to yourself. And the third call to come after Jesus, to be his disciple, is to follow Jesus. Now, my friends, I I have a question for you. Where was Jesus going? When he picked up his cross, he's going to Golgotha. He's going to the place of the skull, the place where he would ultimately be crucified, the place of his death that was outside the city in a rubbish heap. My friends, we're not called to pick up our cross and go through a field of flowers. We're called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus to Golgotha, to follow Jesus to the death of ourselves, to follow Jesus to the death of our selfishness. To the death of building our own kingdoms by worshiping work and being just completely given over to work or given over to hobbies or given over to video games or given over to selfishness or other pursuits. 
That's actually selfishness. It's trying to build our own kingdom. We're called to follow Jesus to the death of our immediate self-gratification. Following Jesus to the death of our comfort, to the death of our complacency, and our death to the fight to do more, work harder, and be better. Like That's actually part of it. We have to die to trying to be more religious. We have to die to the idea of trying to work hard, to look good, to put on a face, to make sure that everything is together. That's what it means. It's humility. And then we get to the end where it says, what does having the whole world mean? If you lose your truest self, your truest self is is meant to follow Jesus, to be united with God again, to follow him in this life into eternity, to be close to him. You see, Jesus' death is the only way to true life. You see, Jesus wants you to thrive. He wants you to have your deepest needs satisfied. He wants you to have marriages that are fulfilled and unified. He wants you to have singleness be a source of contentment and not anguish. He wants you to grieve your sin and repent and run after his righteousness. He wants you to follow him with your life and experience his resurrection power in your life. And my question for you today is, do you want that? Then you have to go to Golgotha. You cannot get to the resurrection power of the empty tomb unless you go through the difficult way of the cross. Let me say that again. You cannot go through the resur- you cannot get the resurrection power of the empty tomb unless you go through the difficult way of the cross. Jesus says, come and die. Why? So that you might live. So you might be resurrected underneath his power and his control and his authority. You give up your life to gain it. And this is, my friends, this is the upside down nature of Jesus's kingdom. Do you want newness of life? Go to the ancient of days. Do you want ultimate purpose? Submit to Christ's purpose for you. Find your life and your purpose in him, not in job, not in family, not in children, not in a relationship. Do you want to gain your life? You lose it in Christ. Do you want to live? Then die. And here's the truth. Our greatest work as a church family is to die. Our greatest struggle will be to give up our own self-salvation efforts. And the invitation of Jesus is to lay our lives down before the author of life, so that he can give us his life. The invitation of Jesus is to lay our lives down before the author of life, so that he can give us his life. When you seek to save your life, you lose it. When you lose your life in Christ, you find it. Redeeming Hope, we are a family that follows Jesus the Christ. We are a family following Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. And we're a family following Jesus into death and resurrection. So going back to Eliud Kipchoge, he said these, he said this quote talking about his running. He said, in the marathon, the first half is just a normal run. <clears throat> where the marathon starts is really after 30 kilometers. That's where you feel pain everywhere in your body. The muscles are really aching and only the most prepared and well-organized athlete is going to do well after that. I'll go with the pace, but after 30 kilometers, I'll change to my own pace. If you're ready to follow me, we can go together. My friends, following Jesus is hard. Following Jesus over the, to the death of yourself, like the first little bit of following Jesus, there's just joy. You're receiving grace like you've never experienced before. There's happiness. You're receiving grace. You're getting freed up from things. But then there's a certain wall that you hit where it's like, oh, wait, I actually have to like 
submit my entire life to Jesus. I have to submit things to Jesus that I don't want to submit to Jesus. I want to, I'm going to need to submit control of my life in certain areas of my life, like my job, like my children, like my marriage, like my relationships, like my hurts and pains that I want to keep holding on to, like control, like my future, I'm going to need to submit all of this to Christ. And that's that's where it starts to get hard. And when it requires us to die to ourselves in the ways that we want to hold on to things, many turn back. Many take the easy route of laziness and complacency, and their spiritual lives are just kind of flatlined because they're just not willing to submit to Jesus. And they're missing out. They're actually missing out on on, on freedom and grace that, that Jesus is offering them. But But the good news is, here at Redeeming Hope, we are here together. We're ready to follow Jesus at Jesus' pace. And we're prepared to do this for a lifetime together. That's what we're prepared for. That's what we're working towards, is following Jesus over a lifetime together. Now, if you look over the course of your life and you said, I don't know if I've started the race yet. I don't know if I'm at the starting line. I don't know if I've truly given my life to Christ. That's coming underneath his lordship. Now, I want to encourage you today to believe the work of Christ for you. Die to yourself. Commit your life to him so that you may live. You can believe this today, this moment. You can pray and receive this new life that Jesus offers you. Yeah, hear this message. Believe it's true for you and then obey by making Jesus Lord and King over your life. Say, I'm going to follow you as my master and commander the rest of my life. You are a follower of Jesus. Christ is your life. He's your ultimate good. But sometimes we can forget that. Sometimes we can struggle to remember that. We can we can descend back into selfishness. And the Christian life is never like a P90X program, right? It's never just for 30 years straight. No. It's like Eugene Peterson said, slow, steady faithfulness over time. And you zoom in on the week-to-week trajectory. You look over 30 years, you want to see good, healthy, sustainable pattern of growth spiritually. But you zoom in week-to-week, you zoom in month-to-month, there's going to be times where, where you're going to struggle. There's going to be times where you're going to struggle with sin. You're going to struggle with giving over things to God. You're going to struggle with trust and faith. And that's okay. We're not expecting perfection here. The only person we expect perfection from is Jesus. And he's already been perfect for us. So you have the perfect record of Jesus over your life if you're a Christian. You really do. And so that means that you can fail without having to to completely be wrecked. This means that, that you can fail without being a failure. Because you have Jesus' success over your life. And so with that, that means that we want practices to continually give our life to Christ over and over and over again. Give every aspect of who we are back to God in worship. And so how do you sustainably follow Jesus over a lifetime that slow, steady faithfulness? Well, three things. Receive, respond, reproduce. First, receive. We want you to repent and believe the gospel, to spend time with Jesus, receive the life of Jesus for you. Abide with him, read the scriptures, pray, be in community, be in group, where you're going to be known and loved and cared for. And it's in those groups and by coming to church on Sunday mornings that we can then do the second piece is responding. That's responding in obedience and faith. This means that we say, hey, guess what? I'm going to, I'm going to follow the life and teachings of Jesus. I want to obey him. I'm going to have faith in him. I'm going to hear the message of the gospel consistently through receiving, through spending time with him, through abiding, through being in group, reading the Bible consistently, praying. And I'm going to respond in in belief. I'm going to truly believe in Jesus with open hands and 
And then I'm going to obey Jesus when he tells me what to do. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to be a good servant. I'm going to listen to the voice of my master. I'm going to obey immediately. Let's respond. And then reproduce. We want to look outward and invite others along with you. This is part of what it means to follow Jesus sustainably over a lifetime. Jesus went to those who were the farthest from him. He invited them to follow him. Many of them did. And that's our job too. That's where Jesus is. Jesus is on the mission field. Jesus is with the people that are broken. Jesus is with the people that are needy. Jesus is with the weak. He's with you and me. So when you have him, when you cherish Jesus, when his life works in you, as you submit to him in prayer and in sacrifice and in service, you will find resurrection life over and over and over again, a life abundant and momentary affliction, sufferings, pains, struggles, and difficulties will only serve to remind you of the truth of Colossians 3.3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. My friends, our church is a family of faith, united by a common vision to follow the life and teachings of Jesus. And when we follow him as our savior, we learn to die to ourselves and receive his life, which changes everything about us. Thank you so much for watching and have a good week. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.